John chapter 8, as I said, we'll be starting at verse 59 and going to verse 1 of chapter 9. John chapter 8, verse 59, Then they took up stones to throw at him, at Jesus, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Verse 1, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. We're going to spend the service tonight just not so much looking at these two verses, but looking at the transition that they represent. Remember what John is doing. It's as if he's presenting this term paper, this thesis, and his belief is that Jesus Christ is God. And he presents that in the first couple of verses, first three verses of the Gospel of John, and now he's going through point by point presenting who Christ is using certain proofs. He's using the proofs of the works that he has done here. He's using the proofs of who Jesus said he was. He just said that he was God. Basically, in verse 58, the Jews standing before him believed that because they took up stones to, to stone him. Also, the scriptures, the Old Testament, as Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament, there's going to be the overwhelming proof of both his crucifixion and his resurrection and then his ascension and ultimately the sending of the Holy Spirit to mankind that continues to work in our lives today. So to have a clear understanding of the change between chapters 8 and 9, we need to go back to the beginning of the gospel. And I want to look specifically at chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, and see, based upon what is said there, what is going on here. So in John chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, it says, He, Jesus, came to his own, speaking of Israel, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So we'll look at a few things here, but what we're going to see again between chapters 8 and chapter 9 is this great transition, this great transition between those who rejected Christ and those who will receive Christ. So first it says, he came to his own. We saw this in chapters 2 through 4, as Jesus went throughout Israel, he was going to all the Jewish people. He presented himself to the Galileans, that was the area where he lived, to Judea, that's the southern area. Galilee is in the northern area, Judah is in the southern area, and then Samaria would be in that center area. And so he was going through preaching, teaching, and healing, as Matthew said, in the area of Galilee, northern Israel, in the area of Judah, southern Israel, and then we saw with the woman of the well how he was in mid-Israel in Samaria. He was going throughout all of his people. But it says, and his own did not receive him. We've been looking at that for quite a few weeks in chapters 5 through 8. The focus is on the opposition of the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, to the Messiah. The one whom they should have seen and recognized. Remember, it brought tears to the Lord's eyes on his triumphal entry. They should have known. They should have known this day of my visitation. He understood, obviously, that they had the word of God, and based upon the word of God, specifically Daniel chapter 9, we're not going to go there tonight. It's not a study on that. But Daniel chapter 9, those who have done the Mass, specifically a man named Sir Robert Anderson, added up all the years there, and the end of this edition came to the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ as he went into Jerusalem. And so they should have known, they could have known all of these things. And so chapter 8, as we saw last week, it closed with those who reject, rejected Jesus, 
they rejected the message, and in turn, they reject God. There's very few people out there that are just going to completely and totally reject God. I mean, there are some that will do that, but very few people. But the rejection of the truth of the gospel in actuality is the rejection of God. As they reject the Lord Jesus Christ, they're rejecting God. It's why we have to go out there and we have to preach the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why Paul, when he went into Corinth, says, I preach nothing other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Because as man, as he comes into that right relationship with Christ, then he has an understanding of the totality of who God is. And that's where so many cults miss the mark. That's where Islam meets the mark. Since they don't know Christ, they don't know God. And if they don't know God, then they will fashion their own God. And unfortunately, unbelievably, the gods that we fashion are very cruel taskmasters. We have the God of love. We have the God of grace. Why would we want to go looking anywhere else? And so they picked up stones, we saw at the end of chapter 8, to kill Jesus off out of their lives. But the thing about it is, the thing they don't understand, you can't kill God, but unfortunately by stoning him, by casting him away from their lives, they're in actuality killing themselves. Jesus passed them by, but he will have a date with them later on before a great white throne. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 says, Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Very rich scripture. I stand at the door. Now, this is the door of somebody's life, maybe the advent of their belief, the cross-section when they're determined which way they're going to go concerning a worldview or whatever it might be. Whenever there's that determination to be made, Jesus Christ is knocking at that door. When somebody's determining the direction that they're going to take in their life, the direction of what they're going to believe, the basis for the direction that they take, Jesus is knocking at that door, and he says, if anyone, it doesn't matter who they are, it doesn't matter what they have done, if anyone hears my voice. Now, what would that mean? That means if anybody hears the word of God. How does Jesus knock on hearts? He does so through people who share the word. And he's saying, again, it doesn't matter who they are, if anyone, if there's anybody who is alive and hears the voice of the Lord, and opens the door or receives the word, the things that Jesus is saying, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Well, unfortunately, in verse 59, what are they doing by picking up stones? They're slamming the door closed on the Lord. It's an amazing thing. Their Savior stands right before them, and they slam the door in, their fa- in his face. But as many as received him, to them, he gave the right to become children of God. Now this is the transition, or at least where the transition is leading us to. In chapters 9 through 12, we're going to see Jesus calling out a people of his own from the midst of growing hostility. There's always going to be opposition. But in the midst of opposition, there's always going to be salvation. We can't allow ourselves to be discouraged We can't allow ourselves to be held back. We see the things that are going on across the world. And what's going on? People are literally dying. You know, I 
they say usually say it on Sunday nights because we're going through the book of Isaiah and it's the start of a new week. But I, I say, so what's it going to be this week? Well, remember last week we didn't know it yet, but I was standing up here, and as we were standing up here, somebody in Dallas was killing people. And, and then tonight you had the thing in France where they, uh, it was probably a thwarted terrorist attack because he had explosives in the back and he had automatic weapons in the back probably couldn't make some kind of connection with other terrorists which tells me there's other ones so instead he just started running people over with a truck and again he killed some 77 people if you haven't heard about it so my next question is what's it going to be next week there's that evil people are dying and, and you can see the same thing in a convalescent home those people are dying just as tragically if they don't know the lord jesus christ and Jesus says, I'm knocking on the door, but he's knocking on the door through the church who's supposed to go out. And I'm looking at this thing. I, I, just this week, I'm kind of grasping the magnitude of this Pokemon Go thing. I mean, have you heard about that? It's, uh, I can't even explain it to you because I haven't really gotten into it. But just generally speaking, it's kind of connected with Google Maps. And I'm not saying it's sin or anything, but just I just want to draw a comparison here. But it tells you to go somewhere and you go somewhere and then you're able to hit something and score points or something like that. That's the gist of what I understand. But you look at this contrast. You have Pokemon Go and you have Jesus who told you to go. Now, Jesus said to go. And what do the majority of the people do? They're sitting on the couch. Pokemon says go. They're going everywhere. There's opposition. There was one girl who was going through with it and she walked out in the street and got hit by a truck. There's two guys that wandered off the side of a cliff because they were, you know, doing the thing, trying to find, I think they find monsters or balls or something like that. And, and, and people are dying because of this. So for Pokemon, they'll go. For the Lord Jesus Christ, they won't. But the thing about it is, Jesus said, behold, they stand at the door and knock, and that's how he knocks. And, and so with the volume of his knock is going to be predicated upon the obedience of the church and the relationship to see people saved now again I, I know nobody gets saved because of me nobody gets saved because of you but god has called and commanded us to enter into this process and i can't really describe to you in detail how my obedience or disobedience could possibly have an effect upon anybody else but the thing that i know is is that i am to be obedient to the lord and so there's going to be opposition but opposition is the fertilizer that causes the seeds of salvation to sprout Whenever opposition is at its greatest, the gospel is always going the fastest. And when opposition ceases, it seems as if the desire to evangelize is reduced as well. And so opposition or salvation are always going to be the two responses to the gospel. And the message of the cross is to go out to the end of the ages. So opposition will be there until the end of the ages as well all conditional on those who believe in his name. His name, the person, and the nature of Christ as revealed through his word. You have to have the two working hand in hand. The name of Jesus and the word of Jesus. Because without the word of Jesus, the name of Jesus doesn't really make a whole lot of difference. I've been told, even through false teachings, you know, that I've made mention of or whatever, well, at least the name of Jesus is going out. Yes, but if you're perverting the word of God, then you're doing damage to the name of Christ. We have to hold dear the word of God because it's the word of God 
that will illuminate the name or the nature and the essence of who Christ is. Without the word, then you could very easily, more than likely even, have a false knowledge of who Christ is. Now, to the Jews, the name of God, Yahweh, it's called the Tetragrammatron, those four letters with no vowels, it was even to the point of being an idol. They wouldn't say that name out loud. But the problem was they didn't know. They didn't have a relationship with him. Demons know God, and demons know the name of God. James 2.19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. But he's saying even the demons believe, and even more than that, they tremble. They tremble because they exist in the spiritual realm and have a greater understanding physically and who God is. And if we had that understanding, which we're able to have through the word of God, we would know who God is, and it would cause us to tremble. Ezra, when he was picking out leaders, what did it say? What was the tall tale sign, or at least the key to which he looked at when he was choosing leaders? Those who trembled at the word of God. Do you still tremble at the word of God? Tremble at the word of God? Have that respect for God and understand that this is his word and that I am to present myself before this holy God that could so easily judge me, but instead has chosen to give me grace, and that I would be obedient to that word, and I would be obedient to such a degree that it would, it would cause fear to spring up in my life if I would do anything else. And so those who know and understand the nature and the purpose of Christ will truly tremble. Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, speaking of these demons, it says, And suddenly they cry out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before our time? It's kind of an interesting thing. Everybody always thinks they got more time. Even the demons think that. Well, what are you doing here? They, they, they know that Jesus was going to torment them. They had an idea when the time was, and they kind of figured the time wasn't then. But again, if you share your faith, you probably have run into people like that as well. People who think they have more time. That's the greatest deception that the devil is able to do. Don't worry about it. you got all the time in the world. Well, there are 77 people in France who didn't realize that tonight their lives were going to be required of them. Last week, there was, was it 11 or 12, I don't recall, that didn't realize their lives were going to be required of them. I heard this morning there was a motorcycle accident and a fatality. I think it was on the 5 freeway. That person, he got up that morning, he walked out of his house, and he locked the door for the very last time, started up his motorcycle for the very last time, drove away from his house for the very last time, maybe even kissed his wife and his kids for the very last time, didn't realize, but that day his life was going to be required of him. And so it's the greatest disservice or maybe the greatest point of attack that the enemy has. People think they have more time. Not last Tuesday, but the Tuesday before, I did the city invocation. And one of these days you're going to read about me in the newspaper because I get so frustrated when I'm there. I'm going to turn around one time and just tell those people, it's either turn or burn, people, because you, you go up there and they want to get it over as quick as possible. And so they say, okay, well, today, Congre or Congressman, Councilman Swapner, for instance, 
is going to do the Pledge of Allegiance, and Pastor Mike, or see all from Calvary Chapel, Ontario, is going to do the invocation. Pastor Mike, why don't you come up here, be ready, so as soon as he's done, then you can do your thing, and we can get you out of the way and move on with the important stuff. They don't say that, but that's in essence what they're doing. And so I go up there, I wait to the Pledge of Allegiance. I, what I usually do is I'll read some scripture out of, out of the Bible. I'll have a few things to say, and then I'll, I'll go ahead and pray. And nobody ever switches. You hear a pin drop in there. And, and then you turn around and you walk away, and, and nobody, will make eye, nobody makes eye contact with you. It's the most amazing thing. It's the same reaction that I get from people when I do a funeral, for the most part. When I do a funeral, especially if I don't know anybody there, and especially if the person wasn't saved and probably has a lot of unbelievers, I'll, I'll, afterwards, nobody, you stand over here, and it's like you've got the plague. And everybody will, I've had people come up and see me and kind of go around me. It's just an amazing concept. I mean, I see the value in doing the funeral. I see the value in doing the invocation of the city as well, because there's that opportunity to shine light into that darkness. But nonetheless people their lives could very well be required of them even at that moment now the good thing about it is as with elijah in kings chapter uh, 19 when he thought he was all alone there's always a remnant in a funeral there's always a couple people that are excited and come up and shake your hand afterwards i haven't experienced that in the city council yet but other than that um there's still that godly remnant and there's still that opportunity and so the idea is to make the most of our opportunities. Why do I continue to do it? Because of our commission. That's what we're supposed to do. The results are not based upon us. The results are based upon that person and the decision they make with God as God makes, I'm sorry, meets them through his word. We're just to be the conduit through which the word flows. In Psalm 138, verses 1 and 2, I will praise you with my whole heart before the gods or before the world. I will sing praises to you. I will worship towards your holy temple and praise your name for your loving kindness and your truth. And this verse has just always stuck with me. For you have magnified or made greater your word above all your name. Because again, you don't know the name, the nature, and the essence of God or Christ unless you know the word of God. So in this transition, see that the Jews of chapter 8, they knew the name of God, and we'll look at the first man that he comes in contact with, because again in verse 1 of chapter 9 it says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. This man who was blind from birth, he's about to experience the word. And you see that contrast? There were the Jews, and when they say Jews in the Gospel of John, usually it's referring to the religious leaders those people, they knew the name of God, but what did Jesus do? He passed by. Why? They were picking up stones. It was part of the reason. It wasn't his time yet, but he had another appointment. He had another, and it says, it's just this rich picture. He passed by those who reject him to get to the ones who need him, who are going to receive him. And so I can't tell who those are going to receive the Lord or refuse the Lord And so we just keep moving forward. But understand, there are going to be those people that eventually we're going to have to pass by. At what point do we pass by? We pass by at the point of refusal, obviously. My father refused Jesus Christ, and he didn't want to hear it from me. He told me, I don't want to hear that anymore. It makes me uncomfortable. And I'm thinking, good, but in essence, it's bad, because he doesn't want to hear it anymore. But then I had the opportunity. You know, and I even told my wife, well, you know what? It's going to have to be somebody else. It's just going to have to be somebody else that leads them to the Lord. 
But little did I know, the Lord did use me to lead him to the Lord. And so when do we shake the dust off our feet? I don't really know. But I think the one thing that I do know is, is that we have to keep pushing forward. And what I see in this transition, I can even see myself. I see the difference between my BC days and my AD days, my after um, salvation days. There was that transition in my life before Christ was passing me by in my refusal of the word. But then it was as if he had that divine appointment that was for me and for me alone as he came into my life and he came into my life in such a profound way. We're told another thing in chapter 1 that has been flowing through the gospel. Another picture in John chapter 1 verse 19 it says, That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. This speaks of the witness of Jesus Christ through his word. It's the light that shines on every man and every woman. Now how do you know those who are of the Lord and those who aren't of the Lord? Is their reaction to the light. The reaction to the light. What is their reaction to the light? Well, we'll see this contrast in chapters 8 and 9 and what James Montgomery Boyce calls the contrasting reaction to the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was just talking about this to the uh, children's ministers when we were doing devotions before service tonight, but when I grew up, I grew up in La Mirada. I grew up in La Mirada, I was born in 57, and we moved from La Mirada in 72. Behind our housing track, we had the trains that, that went by there, and there was a bridge, and underneath the bridge flowed a wash. Now, back then, they weren't made of concrete. Today, last time I went by there, I don't remember when that was. It is made out of concrete now. But back then, it was just kind of a flowing wash. It wasn't even a flowing wash so much. It was more of a swamp. But we called it the Pollywog Pond because we would go out there, and we'd have mud up to our knees, and we'd wade out there, and we'd collect pollywogs and and, and guppies and frogs and all kinds of disgusting things that my mother would have a heart attack about. But you know where the best stuff was? The best stuff was always under the rocks. It, a, a, one of my friends found a crawdad under there. Another friend found a, some kind of snake under there. And, you know, the, the best stuff was always under the rocks. Well, under the rocks were the things that were content and the things that weren't content. See, in chapter 8 is a picture of the things that are content in the darkness. And the slimy, creepy things are always content in the darkness. When the underside of the rock is exposed, they couldn't move fast enough to get away. They would enjoy the darkness, but they hated the light. And that's what John tells us in 3.19. And this is the condemnation. This is the condemnation for unbelievers that the light has come into the world, that Christ has come into the world, that the word of God has come into the world. But men love darkness, love that which is contrary to those things rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil, because they were slimy, creepy things, if you will. When Jesus turned over their rock, the light exposed them for who they are, and they didn't like it, and they took up stones to throw at them. And in chapter 9, we'll see those things that are not content in darkness. When you would lift up the rock, there would also be that field grass that was under it. And under the rock, it wasn't really thriving under there. Matter of fact, it was kind of half dead, a little kind of green and brown, and just wasn't doing very well. Matter of fact, the slimy things that were under it were kind of even feeding off of it. There was great potential there, but when the rock was lifted and these things were exposed to the light, 
It was then that they would thrive. The creeping things would go away. And no longer were they feeding upon it, but they were freed from it. And so, look at yourself apart from Christ. When you were in darkness, when you were, if you will, under a rock, and you were a slimy, creepy thing. When you were there, you, you, you were probably feeding off of those who were of Christ. You were probably feeding, I mean, making fun of, putting down, whatever it might be. Here, we've got the religious community, who, especially this blind man who is keeping him in his place, if you will. But then there came that, that marvelous light, that light that you found, new light, that, that, that time when, when things made sense, and, and, and it was no longer about a religion, but it was now about a relationship. It wasn't just the knowledge, if you will, of the name of God, but now you were in this marvelous light. And I can remember that when I got saved and, and, and I started hearing the word preached, it was just something, it, it was this light that literally came on. I had all of this knowledge, and all this knowledge was fragmented, and it was bits and pieces. And because of it, I, I didn't know the Lord. I didn't even understand what I had heard. But then when I got saved, the Holy Spirit in my life, it was kind of a neat experience for me, and, and God ministers to us all in different ways. But God took all of that, and all that turned out to be good pre-Christianity, and all those fragments of knowledge God came, and, and he put them together. And, and they made sense. And, and I really believe in my Christian life, because of what God wanted to do, I was able to hit the ground running, if you will. And, and I was able to see things and put things together and advance in my Christian life because of what I had before. Again, I didn't understand what I had before, but God makes all things new. He makes all things real. And really what he did was he took it out of darkness and shone the light of who he is upon it. And it gave me understanding. And, it, well, it just ministered to me, meeting me in such a way that I was able to really understand that God had done something different or caused a difference in my life. And it's that which, when you come to the realization, maybe not the complete understanding, but at least the realization that God did something in your life, it's that that for me, it, it motivated me to move forward in my Christian life. That I knew that that wasn't all that there was, but there's so much more. And even today, I just know that there's so much more because God always has so much more. Regardless of where you're at, regardless of how your life has been fulfilled, regardless of any of these things, God's got so much more. He's got exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think. So we see some similarities if you look, and I put them together, if you look between uh, at the contrast between chapters 8 and chapter 9. In chapter 8, Jesus is despised and rejected. In chapter 9, by this blind man and even his family, he's received in worship. In chapter 8, stones are picked up to drive him away. In chapter 9, he picks up clay for the purpose of healing. In chapter 8, the word has no place. In chapter 9, the word is received. In chapter 8, Christ is in the temple and is called demonic. In chapter 9, he's outside the temple and he's called Lord. In chapter 8, Jesus passes by. Chapter 9, Jesus sees and comes to. Chapter 8, the Jews go out into darkness. And in chapter 9, the blind man who's in darkness, he comes into the light. And notice as Jesus turns to this blind man, notice how he fulfills even the ultimate definition of love because here's a man who can do absolutely nothing for the Lord because he can't do anything for himself. 
you have these Sadducees and Pharisees who look so holy and look so right, but those are the ones who are picking up stones and throwing at the Lord. Here's this man whose only thing he's able to do is to submit himself before the Lord. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8, it says, Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And so there's Christ meeting this man who's so hopeless and helpless. This man was blind from birth. Blind from birth, and the idea is this man had absolutely no hope to ever see again. Talk about somebody who's been in darkness. Now just think about this. He was blind from birth. He doesn't know what a color looks like. He could feel the features of a human being, but he doesn't know what a human being looks like. He doesn't know what his parents look like. He doesn't know. He can't even understand the contrast between light and darkness. He's never seen a sunrise or or a sunset. Just think of everything that we take for granted that we're able to see in the beauty of God's creation and all of these things. That man has never been able to experience that until one day Christ made all things new. Christ altered his life at a moment. At that very moment, he changed this man for the rest of this man's life, and we know, because of this man's salvation, for all of eternity. Again, the same thing that he did with us in the day that he saved us, there's a whole new and completely different perspective on all that we perceive. And all of this is based upon Christ, whose love suffers long and is kind, whose love does not envy, whose love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, who does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, does not provoke, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, who bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, whose love will never fail us. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 39 tells us, well, Paul presents the hypothetical question, what is able to separate us from the love of Christ? His conclusion, paraphrasing it, paraphrasing it, nothing, absolutely nothing. Think about that. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. Are you a born-again believer today? There is nothing that can separate, there's nothing that can cause Christ to love you less than he ever has. That's an amazing concept when you think about it especially when you have the perspective of who God is and where God is seated upon the throne and what he's been able to accomplish, all of creation and salvation and all of these things, that he even thinks upon you, but he continually cares upon you, and it's a care that can never be severed from you. After the Jews of chapter 8, you would think the Lord would be pretty much finished with mankind, but there's always those who God is seeking after. This blind man, we see the example of every person who found new life in the light of the world. In Romans chapter 3, verse 11, it says, There is none who understands, who seeks after God. So what you need to see in this man, and we'll get ready to close with this. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. The Lord had this divine appointment with this man. This man got up that morning, as I pointed out 
so many times before, not understanding what was going to occur in his life, not knowing how his life was going to be altered, but here now, this is that particular day. God had designs. Now the demon said, why have you come to torment us before our time? Well, Jesus has come to save this man at the fullness of his time. It's this divine appointment. Now, what I need to see in that, not just my divine appointment, but really what I'd like you to see, again, if you're a born-again believer here tonight, is the divine appointments that God has with those who are in your lives that he desires to meet that day and work through you in. That we would not hinder that work of the Holy Spirit. Now, again, who God saves is who he's going to save. But we can't have that attitude because God has told us to go out into the world and to preach preach the word, and through that, make disciples. And so we have to be obedient to that. Time is of the essence. People, People are out there dying. But in this blind man, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Excuse me, we'll close from there. In this blind man, you need to see yourself as you were and so many people are. Familiar verse, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you. And really what he's doing here is, the Apostle Paul is wanting you to consider yourself, bring you back to remembrance. And you, we made alive, who were dead in trespasses and in sin. If you want to use the illustration back from John, and you, he made see, who were once blind in which you once walked according to the course of the world. Well, this blind man is a picture of those who walk in darkness, apart from Christ, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh. And the idea is, is what your flesh desired, that's what you did. That's what drove you. That's what inspired you. The flesh drove you. But now that you are saved, it is no longer to be the flesh because the flesh will always drive you in a way that is directed by the devil. But now we are to be directed by the Spirit, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. And so at that point before Christ, that blind man was headed in the same place that the Pharisees were headed. Why? Because all of mankind is dead from the womb. There has to be a change. And it says here in verse 4, there's that change, those two words, but God. And so you've got a blind man who was blind from birth. No, it was beyond comprehension that anybody blind from birth could ever be healed, but God. But God entered into his life that day. God entered into your life that day. You didn't do anything to bring you into the kingdom of heaven. It was God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespass, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he may show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself. This is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That blind man, he had absolutely nothing to boast of other than Christ. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works. It was Christ who enabled him to see, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
And really, again, in verses 8 through 10, you need to see the three ways that God works in our lives. First is for the purpose of salvation. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of worse, least any man should boast. Then there is the work of sanctification or discipleship. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's how Christ prepares us. And then we enter into service. Salvation, sanctification, and lastly, service, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is that blind man going to do as we're going to see next time we meet? He starts telling people about what Christ has done in his life. It's the essence of what we're to be doing. People are out there and they're dying. Father, I just pray. I just pray, Father, that we would get it, that we would truly get it. And, and Lord, that we would just be found faithful, Lord. I, I just even look back in preparation for this message, looking at just the times even in this past week, Lord, that I could have had opportunity but didn't necessarily take the opportunity. I pray, Father, that we would recognize that, and Lord, we would, we would react in obedience. And so, Father, just fill us with your Spirit. Give us the, 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 the eyes to see, Lord, as, as you see. Give us the motivation, Father, and, and Lord, may we truly see that time is really of the essence. And so, Father, we have this great opportunity in the coming week for Vacation Bible School. I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit. Lord, give us an answer to every child, every adult who may be in here. And, Father, we just pray that we would see people saved. And so, Father, once again, we just thank you for this evening. We pray that you would bless us for being here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. you all stand, please? We still have some preparation to do for Vacation Bible School. We're going to be um, doing some work tomorrow. If anybody's able to come out and join me, appreciate the help. Uh, we're going to be hanging some more stuff up. We're going to start setting up backdrops and stuff like that. Um, Saturday is going to be the final work day, and so we're going to be here from, I don't know what a time, 9, 9.30? 8.30? 8.30 until... Um, probably about midnight. No, we won't be here that long. But if you're able to come out for any of that period of time, that would be good. We have some heavy stuff to move and to set up and, and whatnot, as well as, ladies, we have some uh, uh, decor to do. We're putting stuff up on the walls and, and whatnot. And then Sunday, we're going to be worshiping the Lord. We're going to be having communion Sunday morning and a short, shorter study in 2 Timothy. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 53, a great Easter section of Scripture on Sunday night, and then all of next week, we're dedicating to the reaching out to the community, our children, Vacation Bible School. We clear our slate as this church for whatever it is we're doing the week for that purpose. We'll be meeting here every night from 6 to 9 for VBS. If you're able to come out and help us, even if you're just watching in the parking lot, whatever you might be able to do, if you haven't signed up, that would be a blessing. Um, next Thursday night study is going to be Vacation Bible School. So we're not going to be in the Gospel of John. I encourage you to still come, but we're not going to be in the Gospel of John. We're going to be ministering to the kids. Other than that, God bless you guys. Have a great night.